thank you all. It's, uh, it's great to see uh, each of you here today. Uh, welcome to Troy United Methodist Church. As Mickey said, my name's Andy. I'm privileged to be the senior pastor here at Troy UMC and uh, of this great church family. And if you're a first-time guest, uh, I especially want to welcome you. Uh, I also feel like I need to give you a little background uh, so that you're not like, whoa, what are we talking about today? Uh, uh, I feel responsible to do that. Our, our denomination that has uh, really been in conflict for decades. And am I cutting in and out there, Josh? Uh, if, I, if I am, uh, you can always bring me a handheld. Uh, but uh, our denomination has been in conflict for decades about how to best interpret and apply the Bible's teaching as it relates to uh, uh, human sexuality in general and same-sex sexual practice in particular. Uh, and, and as a congregation, we're preparing for whatever may come uh, on the denominational level uh, by a first uh, starting with uh, 40 days of prayer. And if you haven't been around the past couple of weeks, uh, please grab one of these on your way out today. Uh, this is our, our 40 day, days of prayer guide, which started on January 1st and will take us through uh, the last Sunday in this series. Uh, but but uh, we're also committed to wrestling with what the Bible has to say about what true holy sexuality is. And I've committed to leading us through that exploration of the scriptures uh, from a variety of differing viewpoints as uh, together uh, we can uh, make a way forward. And who knows, maybe you're here today because you heard that that's what we're doing. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but I just wanted to share up front that I, I so appreciate your feedback and would invite your feedback as we move through this series. Uh, I, I received a ton of feedback, um, uh, much of it very positive and helpful uh, from last Sunday. Uh, and, and I hope you know uh, my heart that I am doing my absolute best to try to approach this sensitive, uh, it's not just a topic, it's just, it's people, you know, uh, with, with compassion and, and kindness and, and fairness and grace. Uh, but I know that this is heavy. Gosh, I get it's heavy. It's particularly hard for some of us. Uh, and it's generally hard for all of us, really. Uh, but I want to encourage you to engage uh, no matter how hard it is for you, how uncomfortable it is for you, engage over the next several weeks. Uh, because what God is doing in our church and in the lives of individuals in our church, is, is, it is worth enduring the hard stuff for. It is. And God is alive and at work in and through our church. In fact, I wanted to share this great news with you. Didn't quite have the numbers uh, as of last week, but, uh, but our December uh, income numbers are in now. And, and we broke all of our previous uh, giving records for uh, December and uh, to the tune of almost $158,000 of income in December. And you recall that we committed to giving away 15% of that. But when you do the, do the math, uh, that, that equals uh, $23,680. You throw in another $5,000 plus that people gave um, on top of that for RIP medical debt specifically, and you get $29,000. Uh, that we will be giving away to be used uh, to purchase almost $3 million worth of outstanding medical debt for people in Madison County. And then, after that, graciously forgiving it as a reflection of the good news of God forgiving us. I isn't that worthy of praise? I mean, isn't, isn't God good? <laughs> Folks, I, I have to remind myself on the darker days, and I want to encourage you to remind yourself 
that, that what God is doing here is worth enduring the hard stuff for. Amen? Um, now, last week, I, I spent some time spelling out a basic biblical worldview, uh, the way that we as Christians believe the world works. And, and that worldview, it forms us, it shapes us in our understanding of God, uh, of ourselves, and of how God interacts with people in this world. And, and I'll share a quick summary of that biblical worldview uh, using some graphics that I shared uh, last week, just in case you missed last week or need a refresher. Uh, first, we, we believe that God created us in his image. Uh, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, he articulated several different aspects of God's image, which I discussed um, more in depth last week. Uh, and if you weren't here, you can watch or listen to that sermon and see the graphics and everything uh, online at, on our website. Uh, but uh, although we were created in God's image, uh, we are also fallen. Uh, sin has destroyed God's image in us. Uh, that's the bad news. The good news is that God loves us. And God seeks to redeem us, culminating in the life and work of Jesus. And by his grace, God wants to restore his image in us, in our lives, as we respond to the grace that he's given us, as we turn from ourselves and turn toward God and live a Holy Spirit-filled life until we meet God face-to-face -face and our faith is consummated. And God restores everything that has been broken and damaged by the effects of the fall, the effects of sin. That's a biblical worldview through which we seek to answer the tough questions, the tough questions about anything, uh, but in particular for us about human sexuality with uh, the Bible as our guiding authority. Uh, but we would be amiss to try to answer any of those questions without acknowledging that it's impossible to do so without uh, recognizing that there are competing worldviews all around us. So I want to spend some time today spelling out a brief history of uh, kind of the, the current Western worldview uh, as it relates to sex and our bodies. Uh, the, the first thing that I think we need to recognize when understanding this is the advent of postmodern thought uh, as it relates to the body and the mind specifically. And and this was birthed in the 17th, 18th, uh, 19th centuries from thinkers like uh, Rene Descartes, uh, Immanuel Kant, uh, Sigmund Freud. And, and these philosophers began to shape our current culture's worldview uh, by reintroducing an idea that existed in ancient Greek thought and, and yet really clashes with a biblical worldview, uh, namely body-mind dualism. Uh, now, that's, that's kind of a, a, a deep subject. I encourage you, follow along in your message notes. Uh, some of this is, is outlined there, kind of the key points are. Uh, but let me explain body-mind dualism. Body-mind dualism believes this, that what makes a person who they are is, is up here, is their mind. That, that a person's emotions and rationality and personality are what define them. Uh, that, that their personhood is defined by what they think and how they feel. And the body in this worldview? Well, according to this thinking, the body is not who a person is. The body is more like a machine 
some some uh, thinkers even have called the body just just a piece of flesh, uh, uh, and and a material object that can help or hinder a person's pursuit of who they really are. That's body mind dualism, and, and what it, it does it separates the body from one's personhood, and, and folks, this belief system, in big ways and small ways, is is all over the place. It is everywhere. And it has tremendous implications for every one of the hot button topic issues that you want to bring up. Uh, Same-sex relations, transgenderism, uh, just our our basic hookup culture in the world today, uh, abortion, uh, euthanasia, uh, you name it. And, And you can thank Lady Gaga uh, for a perfect expression of this worldview in a somewhat, I mean, it's a few years old, but a, but a really popular song that she sang called Do What You Want. Uh, and, and here's, those of you, I know a lot of you know the song, uh, but those of you who don't, uh, this, is, this is kind of the, the key line in the chorus. Uh, she says, you, you can't have my heart and you won't use my mind, but you can do what you want, what you want with my body. Now, when you combine that belief system uh, with the sexual revolution that, that really kind of hit, hit its peak in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, which, which ultimately redefined sex as primarily a, a recreational activity and holds up a sexual freedom as a supreme good, uh, then you get our current Western sexual worldview. And here's just a summary, some of the key points in that worldview. Our culture sees sexual expression as vital to human flourishing uh, and in sexual freedom as an inalienable right. Uh, our culture believes that, that, that one has absolute autonomy over one's body and can do with it what one wills. Uh, in this worldview, a human behavior is kind of boiled down to and, and seen to be shaped primarily by biological drives and instincts. Therefore, the, the liberation of sex, following through on any and all of one's sexual drives and desires, that becomes a pathway to salvation in this worldview, a pathway to finding one's true self. Therefore, I, I just think about some of the implications. Therefore, our culture sees celibate singleness as an odd, unfortunate, and undesirable anomaly. And if you don't, if you don't believe me about that, then, then how else could a movie like The 40-Year-Old Virgin be a blockbuster comedy? I mean, really, uh, you're supposed to laugh at that. Uh, so uh, now, now, how has the church responded to this uh, kind of Western sexual worldview over the last several decades and the sexual revolution. Honestly, not very well, not well at all. Uh, uh, we, and I say kind of we as the church in general, have made sex dirty. There's something, no, don't talk about it. Uh, avoid biblical conversation about it. I mean, think about it. Just, just think about the last time that you heard a sermon about sex. You can't count last week. <laughs> okay. Uh, the general church has also birthed, uh, particularly in youth and young adult uh, kind of groups, a purity subculture, where we have taught youth uh, to just completely avoid and abstain from sex until marriage, 
uh, but without giving them adequate tools for how to live their lives as single sexual beings. Uh, and, and I hope that you see how this leads to the way that the church in general has just really kind of over-prioritized marriage as the way to almost, gosh, to almost legally have sex in order to still to fulfill all those drives and desires that, that will ultimately bring fulfillment to you, which is, which is false. It's a lie. Um, and, and this has been to the exclusion of Christian singleness. Is there any wonder why it is rare uh, in, a, in a church room, even this size, to have very few um, single people. Um, and, and by the way, if you are here, or you're watching online, you consider yourself a part of this church, and, and you are a single adult, I just want to say, I'm so glad that you're a part of this church. So glad. And, and I am open to your feedback of any ways that we as a church can better hear your voice and minister to uh, where you're at uh, in, in your life. Um, and so, so please, uh, I would love to hear your feedback. Um, uh, but of course, this clash of worldviews has also led to growing tensions in the church uh, about how to respond to the cultural movement toward full LGBTQ affirmation. Hence, our current United Methodist dilemma. So all that to say, the church doesn't have a very good track record of responding to the Western sexual worldview. In fact, Christians are plagued, plagued by uh, many of the same evils that we see uh, that have come about because of this worldview. Uh, Two-thirds of Christian men view porn. Now, that's the same rate as unbelievers, and I shared last week, if you, uh, anybody, if you find yourself in any kind of darkness like that, you are not alone. It is worth whatever it takes to get out of. So my door is open. Uh, don't, don't hesitate. Uh, uh, but also, here's some other statistics. 50% of churched teens support cohabitation and sexual activity before marriage. 60% uh, of marriages of, of people who identify as Christians end in divorce. Now, that, that number goes down a little bit, down to 40% for those who are regular and active in, in church life. But still, 40%, that's devastating. Now, you can probably see how this worldview might challenge our understanding of the scripture's teaching on human sexuality. And a biblical worldview may seem outdated, uh, restrictive, even cruel seen through a cultural lens that values, above most other things, sexual freedom. But if the Bible is authoritative for us, and as Wesleyan Christians, it is, uh, then we must seek a vision of human sexuality from a biblical worldview. Um, and next week, I'll teach on the expressions of sexuality that the Bible does affirm. Uh, but today, I just want to spend a little bit of time exploring how a biblical worldview responds to this body-mind dualism that is so prevalent in our culture today. You see, there is one aspect of being created in the image of God that really, that especially clashes with our present culture's worldview. It's, th it's the truth that, that our bodies matter. They matter. Our bodies are as much a part of our personhood as our thoughts and our feelings. We are embodied beings. 
Uh, let's walk through the Bible uh, just a little bit so that I can spell this out in various facts, uh, facets. Uh, uh, first, in creation. Genesis chapter 1. I read this passage last week. I'll read it again next week. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Uh, again, we are created in God's image. Uh, but notice that, that it's an embodied creation. Uh, male and female. Uh, m- male and female are created with, uh, with, with sexual difference, and yet similarity, sameness. Uh, this is completely in line with all the rest of creation that proceeded in Genesis chapter 1, uh, where, where uh, just some examples, God created light and dark. Uh, there's some similarity to it, but difference. Uh, or, or the waters above and the waters below. Uh, similarity, but difference. Uh, male and female are created, are made to be physically complementary, but equally bearing the image of God. Uh, this will be important um, next week as we take a look at what Jesus has to say about marriage. Uh, and, uh, of course, I must acknowledge, uh, you know, a, a, just, you know, God created us male and female, but, but I have to acknowledge that there are rare exceptions, uh, physically speaking, uh, where, where that's not the case or where it's not clear. And that's, that's extremely confusing and deeply sensitive, and, and, uh, and, and I don't have time to address all of that, but I would, I would put that in the category from the language I used last week into physical infirmities, um, uh, things that, that, that are not the way they're supposed to be, but not by anybody's fault. Um, and and I, if, if you're interested in that framework, uh, definitely uh, view last week's sermon. Uh, but in creation... God crafted humanity as physically male and female. Uh, let's look at a second creation story here in Genesis chapter 2. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. I love this. Uh, just the imagery. Dust and breath, physical and spiritual. Together, we are physical, embodied beings. And, and, and you just have to know, unlike some Greek thought and, and all of this body-mind dualism, being embodied, it's not a curse. Um, our bodies are not the enemy. Uh, th- this being created with bodies was God's in intention, his good intention. Uh, God made humankind, and it was very good. You know, biblical worldview recognizes that an embodied creation is an essential aspect of personhood. Um, in, in the Old Testament, uh, many of God's laws have to do with uh, guidelines for what his people did with their bodies. It, it mattered to God. Uh, and we'll take a look at some of those laws from the book of Leviticus in just a couple of weeks. And this biblical understanding of the body and the soul kind of being intimately woven together as our person is captured in two other significant concepts, uh, these uh, more pronounced in the New Testament. 
Now, let me read to you a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, and it contains two major implications for being an embodied being. And I felt like this, this passage just captured them both really well instead of kind of outlining these thoughts throughout the New Testament. But they exist m- many other places too. But here's, this is just hits it, the nail on the head. And this is the Apostle Paul writing to the early church in Corinth. And he's actually responding to some things that they had said or written to him. And so I'm going to try to acknowledge that with my inflection as I read this passage. This is something they said. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins people commit are outside their bodies. But those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You see, don't you, how how this clashes with a dualistic body-mind worldview, don't you? The biblical worldview, just gosh, it doesn't fly well in our culture today. It just doesn't. It it, it doesn't. Uh, First, Yet our bodies are the very temple of God's presence. Well, we are bearers of God's image and God's spirit at work in this world. What we do with our body matters. And I love how Paul corrects the Corinthian thought here that, that they can do whatever they want uh, with their bodies because they thought, hey, God's going to destroy this whole physical world and Uh, But Paul says, no, 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 you're missing it. Just like God raised Jesus from the dead, he too will be raised, we too will be raised to new and eternal life in in the final consummation. He he says more about this throughout the the rest of uh, that letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, But as Christians with a biblical worldview, we believe in a bodily resurrection. So the second implication is that we, we will have an embodied eternal existence. Uh, We're not looking to be set free from our bodies. We will have glorified bodies in eternity. God will create a new heaven and a new earth, and we will dwell with him as, as in Eden restored. All this to say, what we do with our body really matters from a biblical worldview. Now, how does that relate and speak to the major question in our United Methodist dilemma. What what, what is the best biblical way to honor God with our bodies 
and to love our neighbors, particularly those who identify as LGBTQ. Well, we can't as a group yet uh, firmly respond because uh, we haven't yet looked at some of the key passages in Scripture uh, from, and, and the various questions surrounding those key passages. Furthermore, we haven't yet let the Bible speak to us specifically about what holy sexuality really is. That comes next week. However, where we're at now, there, there is a very real hurdle as we engage one another in, in conversations around this, particularly our LGBTQ friends and loved ones inside the church and outside the church. Um, and, and it stems completely from this clash of worldviews. Uh, let me flesh this out because this is, this, this is extremely important as we have conversation with each other. Um, uh, let me read to you a section of our United Methodist Book of Discipline. The, the, I know, you're getting real excited, aren't you? Uh, this, is, this is our governing doctrine and, and policies of our denomination, uh, which really what's in here has been kind of the center of the conflict and people debating about it. But, but I'm going to read right from, right from the heart of a lot of the, the debate. And this is from paragraph 161G on human sexuality. Uh, this is our stance as a United Methodist Church. We affirm that all persons are individuals of sacred worth created in the image of God. All persons need the ministry of the church in their struggles for human fulfillment, as well as the spiritual and emotional care of a fellowship that enables reconciling relationships with God, with others, and with self. The United Methodist Church does not condone the practice of homosexuality and considers this practice incompatible with Christian teaching. We affirm that God's grace is available to all. We will seek to live together in Christian community, welcoming, forgiving, and loving one another as Christ has loved and accepted us. We implore families and churches not to reject or condemn lesbian and gay members and friends. We commit ourselves to be in ministry for and with all persons. That's, that's where the church, the United Methodist Church, has historically stood for decades. But the line that gets the most press, you can imagine, is this one. The United Methodist Church does not condone the practice of homosexuality and considers this practice incompatible with Christian teaching. Now, as I have spoken with and listened to uh, people inside the church who identify particularly as, as gay or lesbian, this is what I have heard them express to me about that statement. It'll go something like this. A Andy, that, that statement, that's condemning to me. You don't understand. This is who I am. But if you look at what is written, uh, the words clearly say that the church does not condone the practice of homosexuality, and the practice is incompatible with Christian teaching. But, but when most gay or lesbian people hear this, uh, they, they feel condemned because they identify their sexual desires with who they are. 
not, not what they do. Maybe you've had similar conversations uh, from, from one perspective or the other. I know I've had several. Uh, and, and don't you see, this is two different worldviews colliding. A, a historic biblical worldview says this. says you are embodied as male or female. Your anatomy is part of who you are. And your desires, they can't necessarily be trusted. They've been distorted by sin. But, but our cultural worldview says your, your body can be used in whatever way you want to fulfill your desires because those desires make you who you are. Friends, these are two vastly different approaches to viewing the nature of humanity. And, and I tell you, it gets really hairy and really confusing because there are countless hybrids of these worldviews blended together and mishmashed together within the church today. Now, to be transparent, I, I, I don't think that our wording in the book of discipline is perfect. Uh, I, I've been an advocate for changing it for a while as, as I've come to recognize these competing worldviews are at play and how this language does all of us a disservice. Specifically, the word homosexual. Uh, th this word is not a biblical word. It's not a biblical concept. Uh, so it's not necessary to use that word in a biblical worldview. And, and I, I tell you what, it carries so much baggage, so much baggage when spoken to those heavily influenced uh, by our dominant cultural worldview. Uh, well, what, I mean, really, what is homosexual practice anyway? People who, who identify as gay or lesbian oftentimes see their, their homosexuality as something that affects every area of their life and who they are. Uh, so homosexual practice to them is so much more than what they do in the bedroom. So, so it makes complete sense that they feel condemned when our language says the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. That's why you will rarely, if ever, hear me use the terminology homosexuality. Uh, because it's, first, it's, it's not a, a biblical word concept. Um, and two, I, I see that word being equated with people's identi identity in ways that transcend actual sexual activity. Uh, so uh, the Bible doesn't speak about homosexuality. The Bible speaks about same-sex sexual activity. Now, you may hear the two and think, well, gosh, that's the same thing. Uh, but I, I tell you what, uh, with someone from a different worldview, they can hear those two things and, and, say, and define them very differently. And, and you know what? We have yet to dive into the scriptures themselves to determine exactly what the Bible says about holy or, or godly sexuality and if the Bible's condemnation of same-sex sexual practice is universal or not. Uh, we will take a look at those questions in the next three weeks. And I will do my absolute best to articulate the best biblical rationale uh, for those who believe that all same-sex sexual activity is condemned and those who affirm some same-sex sexual practice uh, within the bounds of a committed monogamous relationship. But I want to end our time together this morning uh, speaking to this question of identity that I raised earlier. Uh, gosh, our, our cultural worldview tells you that you are what you think or feel or desire. 
And I tell you what, in, in our over-sexualized culture, emerging generations are really, really pressured to have their identity formed by their sexual feelings, thoughts, and desires. Um, and they're oftentimes encouraged to define themselves uh, by those desires and, and even experiment sexually in order to find who they are. Maybe some of you have been influenced in such ways. But let me tell you who you are from a biblical standpoint, from a biblical worldview. And, and I'm speaking to everyone, gay, straight, young, old, male, female, however you identify. From a biblical worldview, you are an image bearer of the God of the universe. And as his image bearer, you have unsurpassed dignity and worth. And you, like, like everyone else, suffer from the effects of a deeply rooted sin nature that distorts the divine image that you bear. And whether you realize it or not, intended it or not, you have broken the heart of God as you have lived in sin and selfishness as opposed to righteousness and self-giving. And despite that, please hear this, God loves you. God longs to be in relationship with you. He longs to restore his image in you. Your entire life, including your body, is a gift from God to be used to bring honor and glory to him as you point others to the reality that they too are fearfully made and amazingly radically loved by God. Now, I know, believe me, I know that it is hard and very difficult to see this truth this truth of who you really are, because there are so many competing voices hammering around you for your attention. But in Jesus, you are invited to be a child of God and have your identity solely formed by his undying love for you. Your identity is not who you vote for. Your identity is not who you're attracted to. Your identity is not even in what you do. Your identity is the beloved. And you were bought at a very steep price. The price of God's own son. Your identity is image bearer. Your identity is child of God. If you will receive that identity from Jesus himself. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's who you are. And I tell you what, that is a compelling and a hope-filled worldview that has rewritten the story of my life with meaning and purpose and joy. And it can rewrite the story of your life too. And this uh, the Lord's Supper. This is Jesus' way of inviting you into that story and that identity.
the body of Christ broken for you. When you eat it, remember Jesus. The blood of Christ shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. When you drink it, remember Jesus, his love for you, his sacrifice for you, and that you were bought at a steep price. Let's pray together. God Almighty, we pray that you would pour out your, your spirit on us, all of us gathered here, and on these gifts of bread and juice. Lord, we pray that you would make them become for us powerful symbols of your body broken for us and your blood shed for us, that we might become your body broken for ministry in this world. Lord, make us one with you. Make us one with each other in ministry to this world until you come again and we celebrate in that final consummation around your heavenly banquet table. All honor and glory are yours, almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, both now and forever. Amen.